Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Um, we are joined today by Mark Washington Murray. Mark, how are you? I'm really good. Uh, thank you, Mark. And thank you very much for having me on this show. It's a real honor. Well, I'm, I'm glad you could be here. And I've enjoyed our conversations before and happy to have you share um, your, your story and uh, in, insights with the audience here today. So one thing I think it's interesting, uh, maybe to ask you to, to start off, the idea that you found Lean when you were just 19 years old. I was wondering if you could talk about how that came to be. Well, it was actually a little bit late. Oh, I went back and checked the dates. But basically, I was doing my university uh, course. And uh, uh, I came across a book uh, that was the Lucas Engineering Systems uh, Handbook. And I'm in my very early 20s. Uh, I, I was doing an engineering degree. And I started reading this book, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is so different than what I'm seeing at work. Because in England, typically, you'll go to university on day release, and then you'll do four days at work. So it's quite good, really, because you actually get to use what you're learning at school and take it back to work. And... I started reading this book and thought, wow, this is so different. And I had a really good relationship with our uh, general manager. And I said to him, hey, can I create a cell uh, um, you know, with our development workforce uh, so I don't interfere with mainstream production? Mm-hmm. And I'll be able to eliminate, I'll be able to bring everything into one cell instead of going to five or six different departments. And he said, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think I was his uh, lost son at the time. And uh, so he let me set this cell up, and it was absolutely amazing. It was transformational. We had one operator making the product from start to finish, be it in relatively low volumes, because it was automotive, and it was a startup project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did that. And then at that time, uh, Nissan built their first factory in the UK. And they chose us as their tier one supplier. Mm. And I got uh, to run that project to integrate it into the business. And I had two guys from Japan teach me what I'd read in the book. Yeah. Now, it was slight. It was a very nice style, I have to say. It wasn't what I hear is the normal, typical Japanese style. And I think it may have had something about they wanted to be successful in the UK as well. Yeah. And, and that was really my journey. They actually taught me hands-on how to lay out the factory for them. And about three years later we got Supplier of the Year award from them. So it was a great, and I have to say, it's become my hobby. I love it. Yeah, yeah. so that developmental cell, did that experiment end up being the proof of concept that led to transformation of the rest of manufacturing there? Or I'm curious how that played out. It really did, because uh, once that 
experimental cell was a success, my GM uh, gave me the biggest cell that we had in the plant, but at the time uh, supplied Ford. And I, I had responsibility for the operators and the whole shooting match and the results. Uh, you know, it's the old 80-20 rule. Yeah, 20% of your products account for 80% of your revenue. Mm -hmm. and it was such a, a roaring success, particularly for delivery. Um, and uh, I think by the time I got to 25, 26, they then asked me to run the plant. And that's been a history of my whole career, really. I go in, I go in to do a lean roll, and then people say, hey, why do we need a lean guy? or a manufacturing guy, just let's have one guy. So typically during my career, I have run every plant I've worked at. So leading, if you will, the lean transformation from the role of plant manager as opposed to being an internal consultant to the plant manager, like a lot of people end up doing. Yes. And I, I think uh, it's been, I had a general manager once say to me, why would I need an internal consultant to tell someone uh, how to do what he already does. I can save one salary uh, and look after you better and you won't get frustrated because you won't have anybody saying no because it's your call. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, what, what might be considered the more, um, you know, some of the technical aspects of lean, creating uh, a cell, establishing that flow instead of having the spaghetti diagram all throughout the factory's departments. Um, but then as, as a plant manager, um, I, I'm sure you had the opportunity then to explore the management aspect of Lean. And I'm curious what, what sort of coaching that you got from your Japanese mentors or, or from Nissan as a customer around I, the management side. I think the, the real uh, number one takeaway when I started my career at 16, I was a, an apprentice and I worked on the tools. Um, and so I love the Gemba. And the Japanese guys uh, said, there's no way you, you need to be in the Gemba at least 70 to 80% of the time. And uh, they helped me with some visual management tools. And... Uh, it's interesting, ever since that day, I have never had an office because I consider my office to be the Gemba. And yeah. if I need to do a one-on-one -on -one or a performance appraisal, I can always find an office. I think an office demonstrates that you're something special. And really, when you're a leader, you're a leader. You're not the person making the money. Well, and it's interesting you talk about, you know, um, not having an office or, you know, um, Paul O'Neill recently passed away. He had been the CEO at Alcoa and he was very well known for building a new Alcoa corporate headquarters and getting rid of the offices and giving everybody himself included an 81 square foot cubicle. So there was, you know, kind of an egalitarian streak. To him, now he was at headquarters. He wasn't out at a smelting plant or an aluminum plant all the time, but it seemed like he went there a lot. So it's interesting to hear like, a little bit of a parallel of the idea of um, 
you know, kind of breaking down the literal office walls, meaning something different to a plant manager than it might mean to the CEO of a global company. But as you're explaining, there's benefits to that, right? What I really found really interesting is when I visited Nissan, I used to go there quite often. Uh, the general manager of this huge company, he never had an office. Uh, he was out with all of us and he came and introduced himself one day because he was sat only about 30 feet away. Uh, but at the back of the open office was a suite of office cubicles so that you could go and do one-to-ones uh, and similar things like that. And that really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Nissan in some ways is an underappreciated company. Toyota gets, you know, understandably a lot of the, the press and hype when it comes to lean. There are some who say Honda is um, very, very, very similar. And then, you know, Nissan often <clears throat> is left out of the conversation, but I'll tell you when I was at General Motors in 1995, working in a plant, GM had hired in people from different Toyota suppliers. Then there was one guy, and I, I remember him now very clearly, Tom Drumright, who came from Nissan in Tennessee. And Tom was as good of a mentor and as good with lean as, as any of the other people there, which I, I think speaks to the caliber of the culture and the you know, leadership improvement development that, that was taking place at Nissan in the US at that time. But I'm, I'm curious if you could share more you know, about their, their style in terms of you know, you're a young plant manager and I'm sure Nissan wants you to do better. What was their style of trying to draw that out of you in the plant? It was amazing, Mark. Uh, up until I looked after Nissan, I looked after our Ford account. And every year we used to get beaten up by Ford for a cost down. It was aggressive. It was horrible. Um, and they really mistreated us, in my opinion. Uh, when Nissan came to the UK, they said, look, we're going to help you with Paul. And I said, well, I've read about it, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and they said, no, we're going to help you. We're going to send some engineers to come and work with you to show you how it works. And then I started thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then they said, this is your target cost. And I went, my God, how are we ever going to achieve that target cost? But then they said, we're going to send some manufacturing engineers in to help you. And being a young man in his 20s, uh, having grown up in the automotive industry, this is was a complete change for me. And I just couldn't get enough of it because I was learning from people. But, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, nobody had the luck that I had. And their whole approach was always about a partnership. And then one day I was in Nissan and they took me to the line and they did their typical draw the circle on the floor. And they said, Mark, you must stand here for an hour. We'll come back in an hour. Yeah. And I watched it and I always remember the circle that they put on the floor for me were where the carpets and the seats were offloaded. Mm-hmm. Now, their supplier of carpets and seats was actually on site, but... The, uh, the, the truck 
or the, the trailer that these components were in, it would get backed up against a line, and there was only one line making mixed model, and the seats and the carpets came out in the colour sequence of the cars coming down the line, and I'm thinking, wow, you must be a rocket scientist to be able to do this. Yeah. And, you know, really, Mark, yeah, as I said to you earlier, this has become my hobby. I absolutely love it. And, you know, it's so fulfilling when you can see some of these things happening. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, what, what, what you described, that circle being drawn on the ground is most often called an Ono circle after Taiichi Ono from Toyota. Did, did they call it something different since they weren't Toyota people, I wonder? They just said you have to stand and observe and yeah. stay in this circle. Yeah, so it's really about the consistent principle of yes. stand, study, observe, learn, identify waste. Yes, and it was really good uh, having the mentors. They'd ask you to make those notes and uh, they would then, you would meet with them afterwards and discuss. And, you know, they would always, uh, Nissan were very complimentary. They were very complimentary. But they would always try and challenge you to say, maybe you didn't see everything. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've had experience of working with Shingojitsu. Oh, my God, completely night and day. But... I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. It's just a different way of operating. So I feel very gifted that I've been able to be exposed to both types of culture. Yeah, Yeah, so I was going to ask you more about that. Earlier you mentioned that other style, and I I knew I figured you were referring to the kind of classic Shingojitsu style, which has, you know, in their uh, lineage – coming from Ono, leaving Toyota, and some others left Toyota. And, you know, there's, there's you know, you hear stories in, in Japan once, I heard, you know, funny story from somebody that used to work very closely or worked for Ono. He, he was not part of the Shingojitsu circles, but he would say, you know, um, he, you know, that Mr. Ono was aptly named because he would come to the factory and people would say, oh, no, because he would come and kind of, you know, yell and scream and, stomp his feet and you know there, there's you know, like, yeah you're right I mean there, there's a certain style there so um you know I was wondering if you know if you could kind of elaborate on you know they, they have their strengths and then they, they do a lot of great work um, like I said it's different styles but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on that kind of classic or if not stereotypical at this point Shingojitsu style what and what did you learn from that I think I learned the concept of getting back to basics. Mm. Uh, the one thing I really did like about Shingojitsu, uh, uh, particularly when you look at some of the writings of Nagao-san and his sayings, is spend no money, take yourself back to nature, You know, do 3P, but uh, it's interesting, Shingojitsu never called it 3P with me. They used to call it 3D. So mm. that it wasn't just the cardboard on the floor. Yeah. They would really push us to make it 3D. So I, th- I, think, uh, I think where I used to get a little bit disheartened is I would work so hard to try and please my sensei. And respectfully, he would challenge me and I would feel 
oh my god i haven't achieved anything i've worked so hard uh but there is a benefit to that because if you're uh mature enough you will go away and you will think about you know what the sensei is really trying to say it's just very hard you know i i was running one team one day and there was a member on it um, and my sensei wasn't happy with his participation and basically he didn't leave the event he said we don't need you and i was like my god you can't talk to people like that but i think it's if you're able to reflect with respect uh i think it's also a good style and i learned a lot from them i'm not i'm you know they were good yeah i mean you know there are different styles of coaching um in all sorts of different venues. I mean, one could argue that um, challenging somebody and, you know, uh, even, even being tough is a way of showing respect. Believing in someone and knowing you can do better, so I'm not going to accept your first answer. I'm going to challenge you to go back and um, do, do it again. Um, and, you know, you hear, you hear this in sports. You know, there are some coaches that are, considered disciplinarians and then maybe a team gets tired of them and then they bring in what they bring in what they call the player's coach who's soft softer around the edges maybe and then the team stops listening to them and then the, the pendulum <laughs> swings back so maybe there's a time and a place for for those different styles and those different modes yeah and i think uh when i look over my career i also had the benefit of being um uh mentored by rick harris mm-hmm. uh, and, and Rick is, uh, he's a great guy, really great guy. And he would tell me to do things. And even I thought, there's no way I can do that. Uh, and then I had the lucky pleasure to be mentored by Kevin Dugan. And, you know, Kevin is, you know, I would call him a bit of a maverick, but he's a sharp, sharp guy. So I feel very lucky that I've had a huge spectrum of senseis that has allowed me to work on what my style is. Now, my style will be different than every one of them, but I hope I can take the best out of all of it. Well, and, you know, long-time regular listeners of the podcast might know or remember that uh, um, Rick Harris's son, Chris, has been a, a guest on the podcast twice, going way back to episode 34. And then um, much more recently, I'm going to look up what that number is. I jotted down 361, and I know that's um, that's not quite correct. But um, yeah, it was good to, to reconnect with him. Uh, Rick and Chris, father and son, wrote a book um, together and um, have, have done a lot of um, um, a lot of great work. Um, and I can't find, okay, I'll, I'll follow up later. I'll put it in the show notes, what that episode was. But for those who don't know Rick and Chris, can you share a little bit about their, their backgrounds? Well, I think uh, Rick, if I'm not mistaken, was the first U.S. Uh, assembly manager at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's written Making Materials Flow. I think that and Mixed Model Production are there trademarks and when Rick told me I needed to really seriously think about putting in a tugger I couldn't 
I, I couldn't comprehend it. And so I bought one because I was a plant manager. It sat in my receiving department for about six weeks. And then one day I got onto it and I started driving around to these imaginary bus stops. Everybody in the factory was laughing at me. They were calling me Thomas for tank engine. <laughs> I mean, it was it was embarrassing. But, uh, you know, two months on, that tugger was the only thing that moved material in the whole facility. And you know, my general manager and I would discuss many times what the benefits were, and we could not uh, figure it out. But it was massive to the point uh, before we did that, we had a sales manager who had left us uh, and he came back. And he came out onto the plant one day with me and he said, Mark, don't you have any work? I <laughs> said, yeah, yeah, we've got loads of work. He said, you can't do it. It's so quiet here. I can't see anybody running around. I can't see anybody moving. So you can't have any work. And I said, that's because the tugger moves everything. Yeah. And so that was really my thing with Rick. And then Rick taught me a class and I had the absolute pleasure of helping him and his wife in Frankfurt with their luggage. It was, it was almost like an honour. You know, I was a young guy. I could carry all their luggage. And, uh, I mean, that was a tremendous uh, honour. Yeah. And um, so as you moved along, um, I was wondering if you could talk about you know, as your career progressed, transition from uh, Nissan to Parker Hannafin and Parker Hannafin is another company I think is very um, highly regarded in terms of their lean practices. What, how, how did that progress for you? Well, uh, I always knew once we got married, we would like to come to the US. Uh, one, I don't like the weather in England and I love the weather in Fort Worth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so I went and worked for Parker Hannafin. I went there originally as their lean manager. And uh, after three months, they made me the manufacturing and lean manager. Yeah, uh, there, you was, there you go again, right? Yeah. Again. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, we worked really hard. And the benefit was when I arrived, we weren't making a huge amount of money. We were in the middle of nowhere in England, and you know we thought Parker Hannafin being a $14 billion corporation, but they would probably close us. And so trying to get change, there was a real reason. You know, we wanted to do well. Uh, and so we worked, you know, it wasn't me, it was the team. And, you know, it was amazing, but we actually became the first lean model plant in the whole of Parker Hannafin. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a tremendous award for us because, you know, I think at some point we had become, we thought we were better than we actually were. And I think going through that assignment and assessment, proved to me that really we were just scratching the surface. So Parker Hannafin gave us the first uh, lean model plant, uh, probably my 15 minutes to fame. And mm -hmm. I then approached Parker and said, hey, would it be possible to come to the US? And they said, sure, come to Cleveland to head office. 
Mm-hmm. And I went, no, 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 Cleveland's too cold for me. Uh, I'm not sure I would want to do that. And they said, okay, we got an opportunity in Houston. So I said, yeah, love it. Uh, we came out with even not even checking Houston out. We just came out. Yeah. Um, boy, that was scary. We got off the plane on to Beltway A. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, again, uh, I, I came in as lean manager. I looked after plants in Italy, Norway, Sweden, Mexico, uh, Ohio. And then they asked me to run the local plant as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was all going great. And then they did an acquisition. Uh, and they said, hey, Mark, will you go up and run the new acquisition and integrate the Parker values? And I said, yeah, absolutely. No problem at all. And then about a year and a half ago, they said, we're building a brand new facility in Fort Worth. Would you go to Fort Worth? and help create the culture ready for when we move into the building. I said, no problem. So, you know, Parker Hannafin uh, gave me what my company in England couldn't. They gave me global travel. uh, They gave me everything a young man pursuing a career could ever want. Yeah, a great company, I have to say. Yeah. So um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the... The, your mindset or what you were looking for and how much time you were given when you talk about going to Fort Worth and trying to establish the culture in that plant? What, what, how would you describe that ideal culture that you were looking to set up there? Okay, this is a, this is a good question because I think this is one of the biggest learning moments I've had in my career. Um, They moved me to Fort Worth. Everything was going great. They made me plant manager as well. And that was looking after about five, six hundred people. And I had never, ever worked in aerospace. It was my very first time. And I feel because I came from the industrial world or automotive, you know, in that world, If you don't deliver your parts at the price, tomorrow you're not going to have any work. And so when I came to aerospace, the attitude was completely different. It was, oh, well, it's okay. The contract's for 15 years. We'll be okay. And, you know, it takes two to tango in every situation. And I think my industrial style wasn't, suited at the time to the aerospace style. So I think they asked me to do the job. They asked me then to run the plant after being there for six months. Uh, But I think, yeah, because I'm English, I will tell people how it is. And I don't think that goes down particularly well in aerospace. No. You, being being English, you do it um, politely, or it's perceived that way, isn't it? I hope so. I, uh, hope American, so. I thought Americans tended to be a little bit more blunt. It, well, you could be right, Mark. You could be right. Uh, the one thing I do know is I could not think of anywhere better to live in the world. I love it here. Yeah. And, yeah, I was trying to say one – 
the, country, yeah, the, the countries are different. They're both lovely countries. I've, I've really enjoyed the time. I haven't had as much time in England as you've um, had here in, in the U.S., but we can <coughs> celebrate the charming differences um, and everything. But so, you know, there's so, uh, you know, maybe I don't know if there's a parallel. There's there's there's, you know, we, we uh, say between British English, American English, sometimes we're, we're separated by a common language, as you've heard that expression. Um, between automotive and aerospace, like what were some of the what were some of the similarities when you when you would describe a lean culture? Some of the things that were consistent, and some of the things where um, it was maybe a, just I don't know if it was charming or not, but it was a difference. Um, I think in the automotive industry, and this is just my experience, and I could be wrong, but I think it's survival of the fittest. Absolutely. So uh, people in that industry recognize how powerful lean is. And, you know, if you, yeah, I would compare automotive to living the values of lean and genuinely trying to make it happen. And I think when you look at an industrial conglomerate like Danaher, I think they're very similar. I think in aerospace, uh, for the right reasons, I'm sure, because of air traffic safety and things like that, the willingness to change is very minimal once a product has been achieved, even to the point changing the manufacturing method. Uh, you know, Even if you were to move a machine two foot to the left, in automotive, there's a procedure you need to go through and document, but in aerospace, you need the customer to actually come to site in some cases and approve it. So I think in aerospace, the rules limit the creativity. When, when you talk about that survival of the fittest, I wonder if um, I've only worked in automotive and not in um, aerospace, but I wonder if there's a bit of a dynamic where an automotive, you know, sometimes um, an OEM threatens to switch suppliers and uses that as leverage. Um, maybe that's more the Ford or, or Detroit model, but maybe are, are there, are they more kind of long-term locked in relationships in aerospace? I wonder that that leads to maybe a different urgency or just a different culture. I'm kind of speculating you off know, the top of my head, but I'm wondering. I'm trying to answer it, and I would say I would agree with you in automotive with the experiences I had with Ford uh, back in the 90s and you know the late 80s. Uh, and I'm sure that's changed now. The, the world has moved on. Uh, but with Nissan, it was a partnership, and every day I went to work, I knew it was a partnership. Sure. There was an expectation, mm -hmm. but the expectation was, if you can't figure it out, we're going to help you, and that's different. In aerospace, I think, you know, you, you, you think of a, a Boeing that have a huge reputation for lean, um, but as you start going down the supply chain, I I wonder how many people are really, truly committed to lean 
as they have got the long-term relationships. That, that's a good question. And I, I'm sure there's, there's variation from company to company and plant to plant, yeah. and industry to industry. Um, one other thing we were going to talk about was, you know, you've talked about lean and, and you know, variations of the Toyota production system. Did Six Sigma enter your work as, as a leader? And I'm, I'm curious what you saw in terms of um, overlap or coexistence between lean and Six Sigma. Oh, my God. That is a hard question. So early in my career, I always favored lean over Six Sigma because I, I believe lean is eliminating waste and Six Sigma is reducing waste. Um, uh, sorry, variation. Yeah. Um, and so I think I was, as a young man, I was very narrow, narrowly focused on the lean side of it and then as i've got older uh, i've realized that actually both disciplines have a lot to offer it's really where do you use them uh, and so for me i can't favor either discipline uh, i think both are equally important uh, but i do believe your starting point should probably be eliminating waste before you try to get to eliminate the variation. And, you know, I took a, a black belt. Um, unfortunately, although I've done all the uh, qualified uh, classroom work, when my company moved me to Fort Worth, I said, hey, what about my project? And yeah. they said, focus on the new building then you can do your project. So I'm not certified, but I believe I could be certified within uh, three or four months. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I agree with you. There's, there's a time and a place for each. And I wasn't trying to set it up as a, you know, wh wh which is better, which is the only one to use. Um, yeah. I think, you know, there, there, there's overlap in different ways. Cause you know, arguably within lean or, or TPS, we're also focusing on reducing variation you know, through standard work and other, other practices. So one other, one other thing we were going to touch on here um, is uh, Toyota Kata and, um, you know, a more recent development. I think Mike, Mike Rother's book is about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious, you know, how did you get exposed to that? And what were your perceptions of that um, as, uh, you know, uh, say an experienced lean practitioner? I, I was, I would say also an experienced lean practitioner when I've been exposed to it. I've never been, uh, I have nothing against it. I've never really been diehard into that community. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your experiences were. So as I said, uh, Mark, lean is my hobby. And when Mike's book came out, I bought it immediately. Uh, and it appealed to me. Uh, because I'm an analytical guy, Kaizen can occasionally stress me out. It's not a problem, you know, running a weak Kaizen event, but it can be very stressful that you're trying to get the results so quick. Sure. And being analytical, that's not in my nature. So I read uh, Mike's book, and uh, this they, at the time, uh, they had moved me uh, to the north, the new acquisition in Houston, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to one of my supervisors, let's give this a try. And uh, so I was the coach. He was the learner. And I have to say, the results we achieved, be it over a longer period, were outstanding. Not only in people's development, because it wasn't all full on for a week. Yeah. Uh, it was remarkable. And, you know, I will never abandon Kaizen, yeah, because I think Kaizen has its place. Mm -hmm. But if you're really trying to get to that target condition, uh, I really like Mike's process. Uh, So for me, I'm self-taught. I'm comfortable being a coach doing it. Uh, And, in fact, I'm very lucky in that I'm working with uh, wonderful Karen Ross and Katie Anderson. Oh, good. I think their process is very similar to Mike's, but it's very much more human. And I like what that side of it brings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Mike's work. I think he did a great job yeah. and he helped the community. But that does not mean that you forget about Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I've, yeah, Mike. Mike is uh, is is brilliant. He's a, he's, a, he's a great teacher. And you know, when I get exposed to Kata, and I think I recognize better now the differences as I've been coached and mentored by people. So when, you know, you're talking about kaizen events, that kind of classic, typical four or five day thing that I think was basically a creation of Shingojutsu consultants. Um, and and I, did, I distinguish kaizen events, or I, I would say kaizen events are a form of kaizen. Then there's also more of the, you might call daily continuous improvement, small incremental uh, improvements done by team members and, and, and mentored by somebody. Like to me, the Toyota Kata pro- process is very similar to that style of Kaizen. And, yes. uh, you know, Toyota Kata adds um, models that are, you know, kind of uh, approaches that are helpful where I, I, I would say, I think it's a form of, of PDCA, but there's more to it than I think what a lot of us were taught about basic PDCA in terms of coaching and setting a challenge instead of maybe just reacting to waste. You know, I mean, there, there's a lot that Toyota Kata brings to an organization. Yeah. And I agree with you, Mark, because you can do your daily gamble walks, but really you're just trying to find out what's uh, normal, abnormal and trying to address that. Uh, and I think with Kata, it can say how yeah. one thing Toyota says is develop people before processes and products. Yeah, I think Kata is a perfect way of developing people. I, yeah, it's much more powerful for me than Kaizen. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, one other thing we, we were going to touch on. Um, and, and, and I know you've got some um, really nice reflections to share about the career transition and search that you're going through right now after leaving Parker Hannafin. I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on that. Yes. I'm, uh, as you said, Mark, I'm currently in transition. Uh, and I think having only ever worked for two companies, initially it was it was scary. 
Uh, and then some things have happened in my life in that I've started networking. I've started being able to, this is my first podcast, everyone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this has been a great learning experience for me. And then I uh, found the time to consolidate all my UK pensions, which is amazing because it really is a minefield. Uh, and then my wife uh, contracted uh, cancer. And so I had to take her for chemo and radio. Uh, and by the way, she's really doing well, really. Uh, she's getting stronger every day. And it suddenly dawned on me, these things are more than just a mistake. Something is behind all of this. There is no way I could get the time to figure out how I could become a better person how I could get the time to take my wife to hospital, how I could get the time to look at my pensions. And so uh, I think through that journey, I've started to find God. And it's, it sounds strange, but at 56 years, not really thinking much about God, believing him tokenly, uh, this is very powerful, and I believe he absolutely put me in this position. So, yeah, I'm in transition, uh, but it's been a great uh, period of learning for me, and hopefully I can find somebody who's looking for my skills in the Fort Worth area. I'm happy to travel, uh, and I'd be delighted to try and help somebody with my skills and experience, because... Definitely, this transition has made me a better person than when I was in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. Yeah. Well, it's very nice of you to share those reflections. And, um, you know, during, during a time that um, I, I know from past experience can be, can be stressful. And um, there's a lot going on right now. So, of, of course, anyway. So thank you for, for sharing those reflections. Um, maybe, you know, kind of final question to... Um, close things off a little bit here. You know, you said that, you know, you, you have been in a lean manager job and then you end up being pulled into um, manufacturing management or plant management role. What, what, what do you think, you, what would you prefer at this point? Or I guess some of that, you know, you may get hired into something and then get pulled somewhere else. So, so who knows, but what would you, what, well, what are you aiming for? It's interesting uh, through, through this journey, Mark, um, I've been reading a book uh, that's 30 Days to Live. It's written by a, a pastor in Houston, and he, he's written it in a language that I can understand. <laughs> and in there, it said, God put you here to work on your strengths. So I think originally I was looking for a comfortable role, uh, and I don't think that's what God wants from me. I think he wants to challenge me to use my strengths. And so either role would be good. The good thing about plant management is you get to look after the metrics and you get to uh, really demonstrate to the stakeholders what can be achieved. Whereas if you're just doing the lean role, you're more of an advisor uh, and you, you don't get necessarily the credit. So I think either role will be good, but if 
the past as anything to be learnt from, I think I'll end up with a lean roll and then up running the plant again. Sure. And if somebody listening or watching um, wants to get in touch with you, what, do you, what would you suggest? An email address? I, or how? I would absolutely go on to LinkedIn and try and connect with me. Okay. Uh, and if they would like to do a Zoom call uh, to further the possibilities, you know, I'm really looking for a company where I can come and help. Yeah. Uh, I'm not looking for a job. Go be of service to a company and its people, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So um, our, our guest, uh, a first-time podcast guest um, anywhere. I'm glad you jo- you you chose this podcast <laughs> as, as your first. I think you did a great job, Mark. Um, thank you for um, try- trying something new, and um, I think you did real well. It's been a real pleasure, and I have to say, Mark, you made it so easy for me. And uh, you know, I've listened to a couple of your other podcasts, and I was thinking, yeah, if I get stuck, Mark will help me out. Yeah. So um, our guest has been Mark Lushington Murray. Uh, Mark, I look forward to um, getting back to Texas at, at some point, and uh, we can get together in person once we're done quarantining here in Florida or wherever. So. Look forward to seeing you in person that. sometime. Yeah, I would love that. And lunch will be on me. Uh, well, thanks. Um, so again, you know, to uh, the uh, to the viewers, take a look at um, the bottom of the screen. You'll you'll see a link to the blog post for this episode, where I'll link uh, to Mark's LinkedIn page. Um, or again, I, I think if you go search for Mark Lushington Murray, they'll they'll find you right. Yes, sir. There's not many people on this planet with that name. Very good. And it's Mark with a C. So again, like our different accents, we've got different spellings of our names. Variety is the spice of life, maybe, huh? It is indeed, sir. And I've really enjoyed this. And you've given me the confidence to be able to do this sort of thing again. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Thanks, sir. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.